Welcome to this podcast from the Triple Helix Cambridge June Cafe Scientific event, sponsored by the Medical Research Council. I'm Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. This month's Cafe Scientifique looked into the effects of gambling on our brains to reveal why placing wages on roulette tables and slot machines can be so addictive and how nearly winning a bet seems to feel just as good as winning. The event speaker was Dr Luke Clark from the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Cambridge. The work that we've been doing over the last couple of years has been looking at um, why people gamble and how some people develop gambling problems. And we've been particularly interested in uh, how gamblers overestimate their chances of winning while they gamble so that when they're in the casino or in the bookmakers, they really believe that they're about to win. And we've been looking at some of the features of gambling games that uh, cause that overestimation. In particular, we've been focusing on um, gambling near misses where the, the gambler narrowly misses out on a, a, a major win. And um, those are very interesting events. We've been uh, studying them in some simple behavioural experiments in uh, Cambridge students. We've also been doing some brain imaging studies where we scan both um, healthy non-gambling volunteers and also recently uh, regular gamblers uh, at Addenbrooke's Hospital while they play our gambling tasks in the scanner. Now, how prevalent is gambling, say, in the UK? Well, we know uh, across the population about um, 70% of the population gamble on at least an occasional basis. So it's a very common behaviour. And, of course, for most of these people, it's, um, it's a form of entertainment, it's a, a form of fun. But we know that uh, in a minority of those who gamble, their gambling spirals out of control. And the estimates on problem gambling are probably in the order of about uh, 3% of the population. And what is it about gambling then that entices like, human beings to, to do it and take part? Really, there are, there are two ways that, that psychologists have approached that question. One approach is to think about the excitement that gambling induces and how that excitement might offset the simple financial decision whether to gamble or not. Uh, another approach is to look at the ways in which gamblers misperceive their chances of winning and overestimate their chances of winning. And we believe completely that these two approaches are linked and we think that our data uh, show that these approaches are linked. Now, you look at this then from a neurological angle, so you look at brain activity. So how do you actually set about looking into this with um, patients or gamblers? And what do you actually see? What is the brain activity taking place? Well, the first step uh, that we have to do there is to design behavioural tasks that can capture these phenomena that we're interested in in the lab. So we've developed a very simple slot machine task that can elicit these near-miss events, and we work with that task outside of the brain scanner, and then when we understand how the task works, we can take it into uh, the brain scanner. So we have people lying in a scanner, they see the task on a monitor behind the scanner, and they're responding on the task using a button box and we can measure brain activity while they receive these certain outcomes. So we can see, for example, when they win 50p pieces in the case of our task, when they win 50p in the scanner, we can see a reward system in the brain 
light up. And this is the same system that responds to things like chocolate and uh, sexual stimuli, and it's the same system that's targeted by drugs of abuse as well. The interesting thing that we find in our studies with uh, near misses is that the near misses also elicit responses in this reward circuitry, even though at an objective level, the volunteer, the gambler, hasn't actually won anything. There's been no actual reward delivered, but the brain is still responding as if some reward has been received. So a near miss is still giving a sense of pleasure, really? It's, it's a, a bit of a distinction between, you know, the agony and, and the victory. They are unpleasant, they're, they're aversive, they're actually more unpleasant than the complete misses, but at the same time, in a rating that we take just a couple of seconds later, they say that they want to carry on playing more after the near miss. So it's, uh, it's quite a paradoxical event, but of course that's exactly what near misses look like. If you see gamblers experience them in a casino or in a bookmaker's, they... Uh, They find them very unpleasant. They can't believe what's happened, but the next thing they do is go and place another bet. Another area explored when it comes to gambling, though, is the fact that people feel like they're in control of what they're doing. And so could this be playing a part in how addictive the gambling is or how likely they are to take part in it? Well, there's there's a phenomenon called the illusion of control, which is actually thought to be one of the basic mistakes that a lot of gamblers make when they play and the illusion of control is confusing a game of uh, chance with a game of skill and virtually all gambling games have a a large chance component there are some gambling games with a, a, a modest level of skill involved but what we see is that gamblers overestimate how much skill is involved in a game and often in games of pure chance like roulette they will think that there are some uh, skills that can be mastered in those games. So having looked into this then what would you say is the area you're looking into next or is there any way of finding out ways that people can control their gambling perhaps what's the kind of next step with this? Well, until recently in the UK, there were no treatment facilities for problem gamblers. And uh, we're now working with the first clinic, um, the first NHS clinic that has opened uh, to support gambling problems. And that's enabling us to um, uh, understand much more about the psychological profile of the problem gambler and the kinds of other mental health issues that they might experience, for example, with other forms of, of substance addictions. We're also interested in the, uh, the basic mechanisms of what's happening when people experience a near miss. Are these uh, signals that the gambler tries to learn from or are they inducing some sort of emotional state that is encouraging them to play more? And we need to do more subtle, more fine-grained experiments to tease apart those different processes. So that's what I think is, uh, is up next. Has any light been shed on why certain people are more prone to becoming addicted to gambling than others? Well, I think there's a lot of mileage in the idea of uh, an addictive personality that that may well be rooted in uh, certain genes. Um, We know that problem gambling has a lot of overlap with uh, the substance addictions. We know that there are certain genes that are implicated in both drug addiction and in um, uh, gambling problems. And we know that there were certain personality traits during the teenage years that... um, predict the later development of all of these forms of addiction. So uh, in that sense, there, there may eventually be ways of um, predicting in advance who is going to develop certain problems and maybe we can intervene there at an earlier stage in order to develop uh, preventative measures. 
Dr Luke Clark from the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Cambridge, discussing how gambling seems to stimulate the same pleasure centres in our brains as chocolate and recreational drugs, and how a near-miss when gambling lures you into placing more bets. Now, as usual, after the event, we opened up the floor to any audience questions. It's very interesting to see the association between the dopaminergic centres of the brain and the gambling behaviours, but you're a long way from showing sort of cause and effect because those changes could just be due to the effect of an excess amount of stimulation, an excess amount of reward in in gamblers. So they've over-exercised those bit of the brain, so you see a different response. Purely as an effect of the gambling, nothing to do with the cause. And then I guess... There's other questions to do with that part of the brain because things like Parkinson's disease are going to be in the same bit of the brain. And I guess there's drugs that treat Parkinson's like Rapinarol and stuff like that, which I think have got side effects of actually inducing gambling problems in people who don't normally have gambling problems. So where's the evidence that this bit of the brain is actually part of the cause of the gambling? And this is not just a, a, a parallel event. The point you raise is is a really big problem in research into drug addiction, where if if as a psychologist you identify any sort of cognitive psychological marker in um, cocaine addiction, for example, it is impossible to know whether that's arisen as a consequence of the the sort of damaging effects that cocaine has on the brain, and we know that for uh, drugs of abuse, or whether it uh, was there originally and is something to do with why that person became a cocaine user. Uh, and, and there's been an argument made in the gambling literature that gambling, of course, is, is, is non-toxic. So those damaging effects of the addiction are minimal and we think that problem gamblers share a lot of the risk factors that are also in drug addicts. So by studying problem gambling, we might get some windows into these vulnerability mechanisms. However... Whilst that argument is often made, I think it is a bit implausible. And yes, this chasing schedule that you see where the problem gambler goes on these, you know, big wins and these long periods of losses, this is likely to cause some kind of adaptive change in the reward circuitry. And therefore, yeah, it's it's very difficult to know whether that increased midbrain response that we think might be a dopaminergic response. It's difficult to know whether that predated their gambling or whether it's a consequence. The only way you can ever address those questions is with prospective designs, and prospective designs are really difficult to do. So we would need to take a group of perhaps teenagers, uh, you know, before these problems have appeared. We would need to scan them all on this task And then uh, several years later, we'd follow them up and see which of them had started gambling and which of them had started using cannabis and which of them had started using too much alcohol. And and we'd see which patterns of activity predicted that. But um, you'd have to do that in hundreds of people. Great studies to do. And and there are are multi-site studies going on across Europe at the moment. One of them has a base in, in Cambridge with about nine other sites around Europe, trying to do things a bit like that. But um, I think we're some way off seeing the data there. The, the point about Parkinson's is very interesting. It's not a new idea that dopamine might be involved in problem gambling. It's, it's, quite, a, it's quite an obvious idea, but there's very little data for it. The main piece of data, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is this observation 
that in people with Parkinson's disease, which is this degeneration of the, of the dopamine system, certain medications spontaneously elicit problem gambling. And these are uh, dopamine agonist medications that increase um, dopamine levels. Now, it's a very difficult syndrome to unpick because it's occurring in the context of a, of a dopamine system that is, already has some pathology within it. So it's very difficult to know where the baseline is there. And um, we've been running studies in Cambridge uh, looking at the effects of those drugs, um, a drug called Pram- you mentioned Rapinarol. The other main drug that's been linked to this is uh, a drug called Pramipexol. And we've been doing work with Pramipexol in healthy volunteers to see if it uh, just you know one-off doses make them more risky, and it, it doesn't seem to have the same effects. So um, that that syndrome certainly says that yeah, there's some kind of complicated link going on between dopamine and, and, and gambling, but um, we, we don't really understand uh, the full nature of the relationship yet. One thing I've heard suggested is that there's a possible third cause, particularly for things like playing lottery, which is that people have a non, non-linear utility for money. They think the small chance of winning a large amount of money is worth paying a small amount of money for. What's your view on that? Yeah, I would put that in the... Um, I would put that in that, that second approach, the... Uh, the distorted sense of the true odds. I, I don't think it's a third approach. I think that would be included. You know, we focused on, uh, I've focused on the near misses and the, and the illusion of control there. But yes, you can see a whole variety of other distortions. One, as you say, is that um, people basically are, are quite good at judging probabilities for things that are sort of 50-50, 40-60. But when you get down to the, the chances of winning the lottery... Uh, they find it very difficult to assign any sort of probability to that. They don't want to assign a probability of zero because they, they've seen in the paper last week that there was, this, there was this lottery winner. So they can't assign a probability of zero. But they can't really... They can't really like, we just can't really think about probabilities of one in, uh, one in a million. So we assign it a probability of some, and that seems worth buying a ticket for. Can I come back at you on that? Because I wasn't suggesting that they got the probability wrong. What I was suggesting is that people believe that a one in a million probability of having a million pounds is actually worth more to them than a pound. Yeah, the, the, so, so what would you call that? Like, is that, that, that again, for me, is a bit of both. You've got some, um, some sort of anticipation, the suspense that you might be the winner, regardless of how small the chance is. And yeah, I agree, they, they know... Uh, they can probably tell you what the probability is about one in a million, but I do think that people are not very good at actually weighting that probability appropriately in in their decisions. And so you can see this in much more basic situations. For example, if you if you get people to estimate how likely they are to die of different kinds of causes, so you have really, really rare things like being caught in a tornado and you have uh, very common causes of death in the western world like stroke and heart disease and they uh, tend to vastly overestimate how likely they are to die from the very rare things and they vastly underestimate how likely they are to die from the common things so you can see even if they can maybe give you the numbers with some accuracy in the case of the lottery they still can't really weight it appropriately in the decision that's what i yeah that's what i think is going on there so it kind of sounds like what you're saying is, is really feeding into your discussion of utility. So what people are hoping for here is, is the hope of a better life, and that's, that's the utility value for them. 
It's like the hope of a better life versus no hope of a better life, and that's why it's worth more than a pound. Yes, yeah, so gambling is a form of, uh, form of um, escape. Gambling is also aligned, you know, a, a lot of the motivation of why some people gamble is um, to alleviate stress or to alleviate boredom. You know, the gamblers that we speak to have a lot of the problems coping with, with boredom. Um, to alleviate anxiety and also, yeah, just as, as a sort of option of how to get out of the way of life that they're in currently. And yeah, as, yeah as, 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 as utility, yeah, that is worth um, more than a pound. Yes, yeah, so as well as the, yes, so as well as the excitement, yes, other forms of u- utility you could see as that, that kind of escape route, yeah. Does anyone have any questions about internet gambling particularly as opposed to other sorts of gambling? So I was quite interested to know if people respond differently to it because I, I guess on the internet, so it was very different for some games. So for poker, if you're playing in real life, there's a lot of kind of psychological tells and kind of what, what people are doing. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different game, I imagine, on the internet where you can't see people's faces and what their kind of reactions are and what they're thinking. And also things like roulette wheels or sort of games of chance on the internet. I personally think I'd be a bit more suspicious of internet gambling in that manner rather than just having a mechanical thing which kind of I pull a lever and it goes round because it's software and it's just you know it could how do you tell that that's sort of true but do you see these kind of reactions yes I think um, that's one of the things that problem gamblers seem to be uh, that that, uh, internet gamblers sorry seem to be very concerned about whether the games of chance are really games of chance or whether they're rigged and um uh, if they think that the okay. other players at it's the not table are not real players, they're, they're concerned about that. And in a way, the, the, the reputation of the site is important in um, that regard. Poker is, of course, a very social form of gambling. It's a form of gambling that the gambling literature has actually quite avoided for a, a very long time because there's, a, there's also a clear element of skill in it. And um, internet poker, with, with a lot of... Um, computer behaviour, what you might superficially think is, a, is an isolated or a sort of antisocial behaviour, turns out to be much more social than you might think, mm-hmm. in that a lot of poker players will comment on the, um, the sort of chat rooms, uh, they'll be trying to interact, well they will be interacting through the chat rooms with the other players, and it may still maintain a, a, some social element uh, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, and that's that's probably important in itself. Um, would you consider taking a sample of investment bankers and discover if they're playing horseshoes or fruit machines with our money? Yes, uh, yes, the investment <laughs> bankers, yes, what to do with them. Um, at a basic level, I suppose you can think about definitions of gambling. Is, is investment, maybe not investment bankers, but is any form of, uh, you know, if we're buying Futures stocks and shares... You know, it's hard to come up with a sensible, practical definition of gambling that would not include that. You're investing uh, money in the uncertain prospect of greater financial outcomes, and that's basically what any definition of gambling boils down to. So investment may well be regarded as a form of gambling. There are one or two differences for, for us, for people buying stocks and shares, which is that uh, the returns, uh, or, or lack of returns, are, are in the order of you know, weeks, months, usually, usually years. And in gambling, the, the delay between making your bet 
and finding out whether you've won or not is a very important variable and for that form of gambling to be effective that delay needs to be quite short. The reason the National Lottery is seen as quite a safe form of gambling is because that delay is very long. So, um, you know, you buy your ticket on the Thursday and you find out whether you've won on the Saturday. And uh, you're, you're not in a constant state of expectation for those uh, two or three days. So that delay is much longer. So, um, yeah, for most of us playing stocks, buying stocks and shares, it's, it's probably not the same. But for, for the investment bankers, for people on the trading floor, uh, they those delays can be much shorter and... Uh, there's been some work done by another group in Cambridge, John Coates, who, who himself used to be a trader. He's measured hormone, hormone levels in uh, male traders, because they were all male, uh, while they were on the trading floor. And he sees clear changes in cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and he sees changes in testosterone. Uh, and these are related to how profitable those, uh, those traders are. So these decisions are not just being made by kind of cold cost-benefit parts of the brain. There's a lot of emotion going into traders' mm. decisions. Uh, these are all young men. Um, there are virtually no traders past the age of 30, and there are virtually no female traders either, as, as I understand it. So, um, you know, those risk factors are shared with uh, with the, uh, the addictions. And... Um, We've also, our, our group with Barbara Sahakian, uh, I've done a bit of work uh, here looking at uh, entrepreneurs around Cambridge in um, uh, this area called Silicon Fen, so, you know, the, the Cambridge startup in the business park. And um, entrepreneurs were also quite risky on some of the tasks that we gave them. They made risky decisions. They were also more impulsive on some personality scales. Very little data on it because they're difficult groups to recruit for research. You know, entrepreneurs are phenomenally busy. Traders are, you know, rushing around all over the place. So they're not very easy to engage. And there's very little been done on them. But my suspicion, which is informed by a little bit of evidence, is that, yes, they share a lot of these risk-seeking, quite impulsive, uh, quite emotionally driven mechanisms of decision-making. But of course, they have managed, by and large, to channel it in a much more adaptive way than people who develop uh, gambling problems or addiction. And we have to bear in mind um, that uh, impulsivity and risk-taking should not be considered a completely bad thing. As a trait, it has evolved for a reason. It must carry benefits within our society. It enables us to grasp niches and opportunities in our environment that more conservative people will not grasp, and uh, and that those are the productive aspects of it. So what do you make of that male dominance, which is also the case for addiction and suicide? There's There's a phenomenon that has been called telescoping, which is... Although I think the overall figures is across most forms of addiction and across most forms of gambling, there are more males than females with with problems. Uh, The females show a phenomenon of telescoping where they move from initiation to a a problem and to dependence more quickly so that the habit develops faster in women compared to men. And that has been described in uh, drug addiction and it's also been described in gambling and it's also supported by uh, animal models of these I don't really want to put my money on any any one theory. You can construct very plausible theories about these effects on purely kind of social levels, or you can also look at some data on how um, 
this reward system develops across adolescence in males compared to females and constructs some interesting but no less, uh, no more plausible theories based around the neurobiology. So um, I, I, I couldn't put those two accounts against each other. So there are differences in the gambling behaviour seen in men and women, and business-minded individuals take more risks. But this field is young, and so there's still a lot to be looked into. Now, after the event, I caught up with some audience members to find out their thoughts. Uh, it's not a subject I know a lot about, but uh, I thought it, it, was, it was very thought-provoking, and um, it's interesting to hear cutting-edge research like it's obviously very recent stuff that's still being worked on it's interesting to hear questions from the audience as well so and what had you thought about gambling and the addictiveness of gambling before this Uh, i've been aware of it i've gambled a bit myself but it's never become a problem i've always looked at it as like in the same way as you'd spend money on a cinema ticket so i really came out of general interest I didn't have any preconceptions, to be honest. It was just a really interesting talk and uh, some, some new things that I hadn't really thought about. Some of the, the neural changes that are associated with gambling, that was, that was news to me, so that was interesting to hear about. And are you much of a gambler? No, it was, that's another reason I'm interested, actually. I don't understand why people gamble. I've never done it. Um, I don't see the attraction, so it you know, throws light on that, so that's quite interesting. It was a very interesting talk. Um, And I learned a few new things about um, how the brain responds to risk. Are you much of a gambler yourself? No. Has it changed your view, or will you be gambling, or will you be not gambling even more now? Um, No, I won't gamble anymore. Uh, (laughs) I think I'm very risk-averse. Well, I always had the feeling that it was mainly because I was quite rational. But possibly the idea that I could... My brain could adapt to taking risks and I could become more of a gambler. It's quite scary and recognising that's possibly just not my own rationality is slightly worrying, yeah. So although the audience weren't huge gamblers themselves, the fact that they could easily become gamblers and the insight into the brain activities behind gambling have really opened their eyes. Now that's it for this month's podcast. But the next cafe will be taking place on Wednesday the 14th of July at the ADC Theatre in Cambridge, where Dr Goss Micklem will be talking about synthetic biology and artificial life. Certainly an event to look forward to. You can find out more information about this event on the Café Scientifique website at cafescientifique.org forward slash Cambridge. The Triple Helix Cambridge Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council. And this podcast was produced by me, Mira Senthilingam, from thenakedscientists.com. Hold up. 